Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid. Conversations about connecting and communicating. One of the stories I love is when A&W Restaurant was trying to take on McDonald's, uh, the Quarter Pounder. So they came up with a hamburger that was bigger and was cheaper. And they figured what would be better than that. And when they released it on the market, it was a colossal failure. And after the fact, they did a market analysis. And they realized that their hamburger, which was a third of a pound, people thought it was less meat. Three's less than four, so I'm not going to pay more money for a third when I could buy a fourth. That's James Zimring. His new book, Partial Truths, entertainingly explores how easily we can be confused, even misled by fractions, and how it's almost always best not to jump to conclusions which is a lesson I failed to learn as an 11-year-old when I saw what I thought was a dead rattlesnake and poked it with a stick. This should be a really interesting conversation because I get from your book that as clever as we humans think we are, so much more rational and thoughtful than all the other animals, we have a common way of thinking that leads us to many errors a fast stab at things without getting all the data. Yeah, you know, the human brain is bombarded with information constantly from all quarters, from our senses. And if we tried to process it all, if we tried to drink the world whole, we would just be a quivering ball of gray matter. We, We couldn't even take our first step. So our minds filter information and our reasoning takes shortcuts And usually it does pretty well. Usually we don't, you know, step in front of cars and and leap off buildings, but it does get things wrong and sometimes tragically. It sounds like you're saying we, we probably evolved in a way where it was useful to us, useful to keeping us alive, to make snap decisions about whether this animal is going to attack us. Yeah. Or be friendly. But now we're in a much more complicated world. There's more things to learn about before we make a decision. Totally true. And yeah, if a, if a lion is charging at you, you might not want to sit down and analyze, well, you know, of all the information <laughs> I'm getting, does he look hostile? Maybe he's really friendly. <laughs> he looks like a pussycat. Looks like one, kind of fuzzy. And today that's true too. If there's a car heading at you, you might want to say, well, I've heard that cars are just socially constructed items. Maybe I don't need to get out of the way. <laughs> but to your point, there are far more complicated problems now than we evolved to handle, and arguably with much more dire consequences. And you can make assumptions. I remember the person sitting next to the actor, James Dean, right before he died, he died in a head-on collision with another mm. car. 
Mm. He was traveling 100 miles an hour down a country road. <laughs> and they both saw a car about to pull onto the road. And James Dean's last words were, don't worry, he'll see us. <laughs> well, it, that might have been a reasonable assumption, but, you know, the, the cost of making assumptions can be higher in some circumstances than others, to be sure. And yeah. there was a case of making one in a, in a real moment of where, where every moment counts in your decision. Well, yeah, you remind me of a line from The Great Gatsby where I think Daisy says, eh, it takes two people to make an accident. You know, I'll, I'll, rely, I'll rely on the other person. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the notion of seeing the fuller picture seems to be really important. As much as it's possible to get the fuller picture in the, in the time you have. Well, to be sure, but again, because our minds have to simplify the world in order to navigate it in real time, our, sensors, our, our senses filter the information that we perceive, our minds filter the information that we notice, of what we notice, it's filtered further perceptually, and then after the fact, we remember it differently. Hmm. So, you know, it is a necessary thing, but also can be very confusing. I mean, you can have six eyewitnesses see a crime, and afterwards they'll all tell you different stories, and they're all being honest. You know, they all remember different things, not just because they were in a different spot to see it, but because their minds were filtering information differently based upon their background beliefs and how, how they approach things and, and their, what they focus on. There seem to be different versions of this. Some of them are numerical, some of them are tags we put on parts of experiences, and those tags identify our way of looking at a present situation. You must have analyzed this. What are the ways in which we do this? Well, one of the interesting things that comes out, uh, and it's a little bit humbling, is, is this pervasive problem called confirmation bias. And it manifests itself in that once we have a belief, any belief, we filter experience in the context of that belief. We tend to seek out and notice things that confirm our belief. We tend to ignore or dismiss, dismiss things that disconfirm our belief. So in some ways, it's not that seeing is believing, but believing is seeing. Right. And it's very humbling. It, it's actually not always bad. It's sometimes adaptive, but it is, it is pervasive uh, in human thinking. And it changes our entire perceptual framework. It seems like there was a major shift in human thought as what we think of as science today became more prevalent because scientists have as a natural way of working the examination of what they assume to be true. I think of them as professional skeptics. Well, certainly skeptical. Uh, you know, a lot of scientific training and education of, of practicing scientists is unlearning million years of human intuition, of unlearning our common sense interpretation of the world, and of learning the types of errors that we tend to make. Scientific method evolves over time along a common theme, in my view. And that theme is the more we learn about the types of errors humans make, and by the way, the more technology we develop, the more errors we invent, because mm -hmm. it, it comes part and parcel. The more we learn about the type of errors humans make, we devise and implement methodologies to mitigate or even possibly eliminate 
those errors. And the more advanced science gets, the more distant it becomes from natural intuitive human thinking. And therefore, unfortunately, the more foreign it becomes to people not trained in the sciences and the harder it is to communicate. It's really problematic because, as as you may have noticed, our society's relationship with science has not been changing for the better. And I'm not making the claim, I never would, that science is the only way to understand the world. It certainly is not a, a, a road to romantic happiness. But if you're trying to understand natural phenomena and you're trying to understand how to predict and control the world around you, it is the best instrument that we have. And it's very dangerous to dismiss it out of hand. It's interesting that all of this can boil down to a simple, funny anecdote about Yogi Berra. <laughs> and there are many. I love that 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 deep thinking can 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 have an anecdote that that carries it forward. The pizza story. Tell me the pizza story. Right. So, I mean, Yogi Berra is alleged to have walked into a restaurant and said, I'd like a you know, pizza, please. And the, the, uh, the um, baker said, well, how many slices do you want me to cut it into, four or eight? And he said, well, cut it into four slices. I'm not hungry enough to eat eight. There's, there's no way I could do that. <laughs> but the reason that's funny is that we, you know, the, this, I'm writing about fractions here, and I'm, I'm using fractions as a lens to understand human thinking. I'm not suggesting we all walk around with you know, calculators in our heads, but we have an intuitive understanding of fractions. And when someone violates that intuitive understanding, it's, it's kind of funny. And uh, that's where humor comes from, the surprise. One place, right? Uh, I don't need to tell you where humor comes from, but... <laughs> I'm, I'm one of the many people who don't know. Well, <laughs> but um, yeah, it can be deceptively odd. You know, uh, one of the stories I love is when A&W Restaurant was trying to take on McDonald's, uh, the Quarter Pounder. They were trying to compete with it in the marketplace. So they came up with a hamburger that was bigger, uh, that tasted better by blind taste tests, and was cheaper. And they figured what would be better than that. And when they released it on the market, it was a colossal failure. And after the fact, they did a market analysis, and they realized that their hamburger, which was a third of a pound, people thought it was less meat. The one they were competing with was a fourth of a pound. Right. Well, three's less than four. So I'm not going to yeah. pay more money for a third when I could buy a fourth. You know, That sounds like that's not such an intuitive understanding of fractions. I mean, that's a, that's a, a societal test of how useful fractions are to us. We don't seem to be so much in touch with that. You know, a lot of humans, scientists too, spend their time trying to explain surprising stuff, right? We don't spend a lot of time trying to explain things that we predicted or we understand. It's when something weird happens. And so if something really unlikely happens, something extremely improbable occurs, it draws our attention mm. and we try to explain it. The problem is, or one problem is, is that sometimes things that are highly likely to occur, are almost certain to occur, we think are really improbable. And we spend a lot of time making up explanations when there's no explanation required, and it, it really misguides our thinking and leads to bizarre beliefs. What would be an example of that? Well, if you think about being struck by lightning, right? It, it, if someone's struck by lightning twice, that seems really unlikely, which, you know, it is. But there's an awful lot of people on Earth and so the odds are that any given year, a certain number of people are going to get struck by lightning twice. 
But uh, someone runs around when they see them, they say, oh, maybe they have a special alloy in their body that's attracting electricity, or they have some weird gene, you know, or they've been cursed by someone or something. When, if you consider the denominator of the fraction, if something that happens one in a million times, and you look at a million instances, it's not surprising that you'd see it once. And if you have seven billion it's not surprising if you'd see it twice. That's right. And then and then getting these probabilities mixed up leads to a conviction of the innocent in our courts. It leads I'll to follow that through. How does that work? Well, there's this famous thing called the prosecutor's fallacy, and it actually comes from a very sad case called the People v. Collins, where in Los Angeles a woman was assaulted by another woman. Uh, and then the uh, assailant ran away uh, with a, a male partner and they drove off in a car. And the victim described the physical characteristics of the woman and the man and the car they drove off in. And there was an eyewitness also that helped her. And the police uh, went around and just looked for someone who had these characteristics and put him in a lineup. Hmm. And then the victim, neither the victim nor the witness could identify them from the lineup. But, uh, you know, that doesn't stop our justice system at times. So... The argument was made in front of the jury that only one in 12 million people would have the traits of this couple. Therefore, there's only a one in 12 million chance that they're innocent, so you should convict. And the jury found this very compelling, and they did convict, and, and the Collinses were incarcerated. But what happened here was a, a classic problem uh, in, in probability determination. Let me, let me use DNA as an example, right? So let's say that you had a DNA test that um, could find identify someone who had left blood at a crime scene. But if you just tested people at random, one in every 35 million times, you'd get a hit. Not, you know, just a different person who happened to line up with the test. Mm. So you find some blood at a crime scene. And so you start just doing random DNA sequencing of everybody in America because you want to find, you know, the bad guy. Well, with 350 million people in America, 10 of them are going to come out positive. Right. And so if you happen to come out positive, your odds of being innocent are, are, are not one in three and 35 million. Your odds of being guilty are one in 10. Right. Because, because 10 people uh, will be identified and of those one, one is guilty. So mistaking a one in 35, 35 million chance of being innocent with a nine tenths chance of being innocent is a big deal. So in, in this case that I'm talking about, Ultimately, uh, it was, you know, determined statistically that there was a seven-eighths chance they were innocent. And uh, the California appellate courts overturned the verdict, and they mm. were released largely on this basis. What's very surprising is that the prosecution's star witness in this case was a college math instructor. Oh, my God. Who, yeah, who gave these, these numbers uh, to the jury. So it's, it's a little bit counter, counterintuitive. But the odds of you just happening to have certain characteristics are not the same as the odds of you being the person who did it of anyone who would have those characteristics. So the consequences of these types of misunderstandings are really quite dire. On an innocent level, it's a little like the uh, prediction that if you have 30 people in a room, two of them are, what, what is it, if they, two of them have a 50-50 chance of being having the same birthday? Yeah, so this is a this is an interesting thing, right? So if, if you have people in a room, what are the odds of two people in the room having the same birthday? And, and if there's 23 people in the room, there's a 50% chance that two people will have 
the same birthday. Now, I have to clarify because people get um, misguided here. I am not saying if there's 23 people in a room and you call out a random day, there's a 50% chance that two of them will have been born on that day. No, they call out their own dates. They call out their own dates. And and the reason is that the, the aggregate probability, you know, is just, is just confusing because you have all of the days available. Uh, I do this example in that class I teach on critical thinking, and, you know, it works, and people just, they, they can't believe it, because this is what was just so counterintuitive when we're talking about things that don't sound right to human intuition, and they are, and we get misguided uh, by those things. Well, you always have the out. If, they, if, they, if two don't show up in the same class, you can always say, well, it's a 50-50 chance. Yesterday they did. <laughs> That's right. Or last year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> once you become a full professor, you have to evoke all kinds of, of things. To explain your failure and ignorance. <laughs> I'm wondering if my story from my childhood with a snake falls into any of these categories. I was about 11 years old, and we were living on a ranch. And I went up to feed the chickens one morning, Hmm. and I saw on the ground a little rattlesnake that had apparently died, choked to death while trying to swallow a mouse. Oh. (laughs) Now, my intuitive sense would ordinarily kick in, don't go near a rattlesnake. Yeah. But I thought I had more information, which is that the snake was dead because it had Mm. obviously choked. So I was curious to know more about it, and I took a stick and poked at the snake and the mouse. The snake (laughs) was not dead. (laughs) A rattlesnake, he opened his jaws, pulled away from the mouse, and then, Uh thank goodness, instead of biting me, he slithered away. I I had interrupted his lunch. But... But the thing was, I had operated on getting more evidence. Yes. But the, the trouble was, I didn't have the basic evidence, was that <laughs> it wasn't unusual for snakes to try to swallow mice whole. He, was, he, he just was in the middle of doing it. I thought he had, thought he had finished and died. Well, first of all, let me congratulate you, because uh, you are a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> and second of all, I will give you the same description that I give to most scientists and myself. Much of the time, you can say, you know what? It seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> but knowing what I now know, that wasn't so clever. When we come back from our break, James Zimmering says that most of the time it's not a good idea to push away information that contradicts our beliefs. But at least in the field of science, there are famous examples when stubbornness in the face of contradiction actually paid off. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. 
Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clear and vivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with James Zimring. We'd been talking about things that seemed like a good idea at the time. So what other examples of this? People assume that they're going to die more if they take an airplane flight than if they drive. So our ability to assess risk is really quite uh, bad. And there's a, a, the word heuristic is the formal word for these shortcuts and thinking that we take, that we have to take. One of my most hated words in the English language. I'm sorry. Really? (laughs) Every time I read it, I keep trying to figure out what it means. And then I look it up and I look at the definition. Give me a definition I can hang on to forever. Heuristic. (laughs) Well, one heuristic might be to look up words you don't understand in a dictionary. So at least you've got that going for you. You know how to practice. A way to to explain something? It's a a shortcut. It's a a rule of thumb thinking that'll help you uh, figure something out when you may not be able to do the whole problem. A classic example, and by the way, this is an example that was, you know, discovered by someone who has won more Nobel Prize than I have, uh, is if I gave you a, a question that a bat and a ball cost yeah. a dollar, cost a dollar and ten cents, right? So a bat and a ball cost a dollar and ten cents, and the bat costs one dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Now, so most people would say ten cents. Yeah, because the first criteria, a dollar together, a dollar and ten cents, that just makes a lot of sense. And then you'd move on and you wouldn't think about it. That's so but if you consider the second condition, right, that the bat costs a dollar more than the ball. Well, if the if the bat's a dollar and the ball's ten cents, then the bat's ninety cents more than the ball. you you're not meeting one of the conditions. And then when people pause and they slow down and reflectively think about it, they say, Oh, all right, well, if I make the bat a dollar and five cents and the ball five cents. Now I've solved the problem. But the heuristic is that that short little uh, shortcut you take at the beginning to solve the problem without uh, without thinking about the, the deeper details. The, the availability heuristic, which is to answer your question, is where we assume that the likelihood of something happening is a function of how easy it comes to mind or how, how available it is. Oh, that's interesting. So we, we accept a solution or an explanation that comes to the first one, first come, first served. Yeah, it, it's common sense thinking, which is uh, you know often wrong. But in a probability determination, if I were to say to someone, "What's more dangerous, flying or driving?" 
right? They can usually instantly uh, bring up images of plane crashes because when a plane crashes, it's it's all over the news. The FAA investigates. They interview the the families, the victims. You know, and and Hollywood makes movies about plane crashes. There's all this dramatization about plane crashes. If a car crash happens, unless it's a, a celebrity or a really bad accident, you almost never hear about it, mm. right? But tens of thousands of Americans die every year in car crashes. And nowadays, luckily, very few people ever die, in, at least in, in commercial plane crashes. But a lot of people are afraid of flying. Now, you could argue that's issues of control or other stuff. But when you choose to drive instead of fly because you're, you want to make yourself safe, you are using the availability heuristic uh, erroneously, because you are maximizing your chances of dying by avoiding something that seems scary to you just because it has been advertised to you in this way. You know, one of the, the funny manifestations of the availability heuristic, people who watch a lot of soap operas consistently overestimate the percentage of doctors and lawyers there are in our society. <laughs> I mean, that, and that's been documented multiple times. Because they see so many on the soap operas. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I never have watched enough soap operas to know that. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, so that's a common uh, example of how what you're familiar with, you assume, uh, is what is going to be more likely. And it also manifests in some very sinister ways, right? So, for instance, an argument has been made in, in, our, in our recent elections that uh, undocumented immigrants are more dangerous than uh, citizens of the United States. And what was done in these, in these political instances is they, they found... An instance, a woman, Kathleen Steinle, who was killed, and they advertised it over and over and over again. And, and every time an undocumented uh, immigrant wound up being in a crime, it, get ads, it gets advertised all over the place. Well, when a, when a, a citizen in the United States uh, kills someone, or just it, it doesn't. It just doesn't make the headlines, right? And so if you're reading in the papers over and over again, you tend to estimate the likelihood of something being true higher and higher. So what happens is we overestimate the frequency of these things because we're being bombarded with it from multiple uh, angles. I seem to remember from that story that the number of undocumented immigrants who commit crimes compared to the number of undocumented immigrants there are is lower than the number of documented citizens. Yeah, unequivocally, right? So this is where the, the, the fraction notion comes in. You have to take the denominator into account. So undocumented immigrants are much less violent, much less criminal prone, uh, prone than people who are born in the States who are citizens. And yet, by focusing just on the top of the fraction and, and sensationalizing it, a lot of people will, they'll deny that. In fact, even if you show them the evidence, they'll say, yeah, yeah, I see your data. I just don't believe it. And the reason they just don't believe it is because these, these availability heuristics has so deeply anchored itself in their minds. But that's not so intuitive to a lot of people, which is mm. really your yeah. thesis. I mean, you're, you're saying we, we tend to think that way. Yes. What can, and, we, do? What can we do to not harm ourselves by thinking that way at the wrong time? Well, one of the large parts of education around critical thinking is to understand the common sources of human error and to develop metacognitive habits to undo that uh, when, you, when you have to undo it, right? And so uh, using certain tricks like speaking in natural frequencies to say, you know, 10 out of 100 instead of 10%, and, and to speak in certain terms, you can make it more intuitive. But at the end of the day, 
you know, a large part of life is learning uh, from our mistakes. Mm. And if you can, if you make mistakes, which we all do, and you recognize the pattern of your mistakes, then then you can avoid them in the future. If it's just going from mistake to mistake, uh, not so much. So, you know, I mean, did you ever poke a, a snake that had bitten a mouse again with a stick when you were standing close to it? <laughs> I never came across one, but I can tell you for sure it wouldn't poke it. So how do you know how do you know when to persist in the face of contrary evidence? Oh boy, that's so as as a scientist or as a husband? Because those are two <laughs> two very different questions. <laughs> Either way. Yeah, well, um, we'll leave the second question to some other day. But, you know, all one of the interesting things about confirmation bias, as I've described it, is the following question. Why would creatures evolve with this weird tendency to reinforce their own beliefs, no matter what those beliefs are? And this is not motivated reasoning. This, this attaches even to beliefs that are self-harmful to you. And one of the explanations is, is that for any belief you have, any theory, scientific, otherwise, there's always going to be some disconfirming evidence. One, if there's one um, philosopher of science that's uh, most famous among scientists is a, is a guy named Karl Popper, who basically said, science is not here to prove anything. Science is here to rule stuff out. Hmm. And to paraphrase uh, Albert Einstein, he said that, you know, no, no amount of evidence can ever prove me right, but a single experiment can prove me wrong. Now, that's very helpful logically, but the problem with that is that just by chance, just by mistake even, uh, true beliefs will encounter conflicting evidence. You may believe an absolute true thing, and just by accident you come across something that is disconfirming. If we abandon our beliefs every time we got anything that didn't line up with them, we would believe nothing. So it sounds like you've got the same problem at work again, the problem being the most readily available explanation becomes the one that guides you. If you have a belief and it seems to be countered by some evidence right in front of you, you say to yourself, is this important? Is this a really serious countervailing piece of evidence? And the first thought that comes to mind of, no, don't worry about it, that's fine, yeah. may be the one that guides you. Well, I mean, at least in the, in the sciences, uh, with very few exceptions, you never do things once. You do it again and again. You you seek alternate explanations and confounders that may have confused you, and you you adjust background beliefs to try to find the greatest amount of coherence, the the, the greatest way that your your hypothesis, your observations, and your background beliefs line up. All, all you know when things stop making sense, all you know is something's out of whack. You don't know if your beliefs are wrong or if your observations are wrong or if your reasoning is wrong. You just know something's out of whack. And and part of a science is testing those things individually and seeking, you know, a greater coherence. Now, if you get to the point where you will not reject a belief no matter how much contradicting evidence you encounter, then you're entering into the range of delusion. And that is not somewhere that you want to be. Or you could be entering into the range of the true believer I mean, as, as you talk about belief and uh, evidence that challenges that belief, you make me think about the power of 
what we're calling now tribalism or just any belief system, any flag to rally around. If evidence seems to counter not only your belief, but your identity to the extent that you identify according to the terms of that belief, then the evidence is not going to be very strong no matter who gives it to you. That's a very good point. I, I have the luxury of speaking kind of in the, uh, an abstract philosophical terms of, of how knowledge is, is processed logically, philosophically. When you bring motivating factors in, as, as you just did, um, social acceptance, things that are morally unacceptable to you, other anthropological constructs, it puts great pressures right, on how we process information and what we allow ourselves to think. That is another level of human complexity, and and by the way, you know, there's tribes in science too, <laughs> hmm. and there's there's authority figures in science too, and there's fear of retribution in science, professional scientific societies too. Uh, but we we have the ability, at least largely, because of the crown jewel of science in America, in my opinion, which is the peer review system, that there is an open, safe space for dialogue where you are not going to be ostracized or hung, drawn, and quartered in the public square for saying something that goes contrary uh, to the powers that be. That's not entirely true, of course. I'm, I'm, uh, but, but ideally, that is, that is the case. Because fear of retribution or ostracism doesn't really go along with you know, finding how the world works. I, you make me think of Linus Pauling, who was convinced that vitamin C cured an awful lot of things. And no matter how much evidence he was presented with to the contrary, he persisted right into his death. He, he and his wife, yeah. yeah. And, and in fact, well, first of all, let me, now this is someone with two Nobel Prizes more than I yeah. have. So before, <laughs> right. before I, I criticize him. But I, I will say that in addition to the Alpha Helix and the other stuff he did, he was in a, a situation at the end where he couldn't be dissuaded. In fact, when he was dying of cancer, he and his wife, and someone said to him, well, you know, if vitamin C was so good for you, this wouldn't have happened. His response was, no, no, vitamin C did what I thought it would do. I would have gotten cancer much earlier had I not been taking it. But one interesting thing about the scientific apparatus is that it is, it's a good thing, in my opinion, to have some lunatics. Because, again, you know, sometimes ideas that seem wrong turn out to be right, and you have to have people out there. And, you know, the history of science is told, or in my opinion, mistold, in some very weird ways. When Galileo uh, said, look, Venus has phases, Copernicus was right, and, you know, the story is that the, the, the church came down on him very hard for heretical ideas, he was, you know, arrested in his house, all this kind of stuff. That that has uh, That is true to some extent, but there were very good scientific objections to his claims, objections he was incapable of answering. And he basically just said, I can't explain that and I don't care, I'm going to keep believing this. And when Charles Darwin forwarded the, the theory of evolution by natural selection, he and Wallace, at that time and subsequently, there were incredible problems with that theory and the theory could not be true based upon the best understanding at the time. And he basically said, you know, I don't care. I'm going to keep developing this theory and exploring it, he and a, a lot of his um, uh, colleagues, and ultimately it got vetted out and it got tested. So it's not a bad thing to have some luminaries out there that are even close to delusional, as long as the ballast of you know peer review and people thinking about it critically can ultimately adjudicate the issue. So let me ask you the question again. How do you know when to persist and when 
not to persist. Well, <laughs> so no, no is a big word, especially with a capital K. That's a, that's a big word. Uh, anyone who tells you that there's not instinct and intuition in science hasn't been hasn't been doing science. Uh, I'm going to answer your question several several ways. You know, it's time to stop pursuing an idea when your grant money runs out. Now, <laughs> but but that's not just a joke because the reason when you apply for grants peers that are not conflicted with you evaluate your science, right? And they're not going to keep funding something that's gone so off, far off the rails that it's just not, it's just not legitimate. Uh, you also stop uh, pursuing something when you stop making forward progress despite a lot of efforts to do so. And if you're trying to solve a puzzle and you're, you're taking an approach and it just doesn't bear any fruit, either you're missing part of the equation or, or you're wrong. So there are a lot of uh, ways that you, you um, could try to balance that, but it is one of the questions because part of scientific training is learning which questions not to ask because you don't want to waste your life, you know, on, on some, you know, just uh, off the rails fringe. Your work and your research into blood transfusions, mm. has that been affected by what we're talking about? Um... Blood transfusion is an interesting area. You know, it, it, people don't realize that one out of every 70 Americans is transfused each year. Mm. And this is a, yeah, it's very high. And you've probably heard of the ABO, you know, blood group antigens you have to get right before you transfuse people. But there's over 340 differences between uh, humans that the immune system can react to. What's so really there are, special, does that mean there are 340 ways for transfusion to go wrong? Yeah, I mean, blood transfusion, we have some very serious problems to solve uh, and do a lot of, of good. And it's hard to figure out what you're looking at and you need to choose what to pursue and when and focus on the really relevant problems. So I'll tell you of these 340 uh, antigens I'm talking about, for people who need a transfusion once or twice, it's, it's usually not a big deal. But for people who need chronic transfusions, they'll start making antibodies against other people and they can make so many antibodies that you can't transfuse them anymore. Mm. It doesn't happen often, but when it happens, it's a disaster. And in, in, in the United States today, some people will die for want of blood because we just can't find a donor that they're still compatible with. And when you're transfusing one out of 70 Americans uh, each year, now not everybody makes the antibody response, but it happens. Uh, it's, it's a big deal, both logistically and, and scientifically. So that's been a, um, it's really been my honor to to keep working in that field, although it's it's a relatively obscure field as these things go. We're not studying a disease, we're studying a therapy and how to make it safer and more effective. Well, th that that sounds like a, a good discussion to have at another time. Yeah. Because we're yeah. running out of time right now. But we always end our show with seven quick questions, roughly related to communicating. Are you game? Yeah, lay, lay it on me. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I really understood how the immune system is able to react to things that are dangerous to you, but it does not attack your own body or things that are good for you. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> uh, you don't, because they'll <laughs> never listen to you. You ask them for the reasons behind what they believe, and you tell them the reasons for behind what you believe, and you have a discussion, and sometimes they'll convince themselves they're wrong, and sometimes they'll convince you that you're wrong. And so that, that's how the communication should go, in my opinion. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Um, 
I, I would say the most unanticipated question anyone would ask me when I was a, a re, uh, doing a medical student, when I was a medical student at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, I had a patient at Grady Memorial Hospital who was an inmate in the Fulton County prison system, and he was very sick. And he asked me not to treat him so that he could stay in the hospital and wouldn't have to go back to prison. Mm. Next question, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Um, you ask them, what is the square root of negative four? And give them a lot of bitter honey to chew on. <laughs> that's, that's an unusual answer to that question. Well, I'm an unusual guy. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table and you're next to someone you never met before. How do you start up a genuine conversation? Uh, say something that makes you vulnerable to them. Oh, that's interesting. Like, what would be an example of that? Uh, tell them something you're self-conscious about or something that uh, you're worried about and make yourself vulnerable to them uh, as, a, as a means of uh, communication, intimacy, and trust. That's a great tip. What gives you confidence? <laughs> very, very little. <laughs> I, think, I think the knowledge that uh, the greatest scientists who have lived, like Linus Pauling, make horrible errors gives me confidence that maybe all of my errors are not uh, disqualifying. Great. Last question. What book changed your life? Aerosmith by uh, Sinclair Lewis, which is a book about a young physician scientist and all the, the problems with research and the politics and the grant money. And it was written in the 1920s and it could have been written today. And uh, yeah, that, that's a great book. Well, Ed, thank you so much for a really interesting conversation. And I hope your grant money never runs out. You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. James Zimmering is professor of experimental pathology at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, where his research is focused on making blood transfusions safer and more effective. He's the author of the 2019 book, What Science Is and How It Really Works, and his new book is Partial Truths, How Fractions Distort Our Thinking. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Lindy Elkins-Tanton. She's in the final stages of prepping a space mission that'll be going where no spacecraft has gone before. The thing that's great about this, this mission is that it's fundamental human exploration. We don't have that many opportunities to do that anymore. We've been all the places on the Earth. We've been to all our local planets. But this is a kind of asteroid that seems to be different from all the other ones. So we're going to find out things that are going to surprise us. 
Lindy Elkins Tanton, and a visit to a faraway asteroid that may reveal secrets about the core of our own Earth. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 